I first read about Beatty Wolf on a tech website discussing her innovative technology approach to an album that she was presenting at London Tech Week. Though you might expect this techie musician to lean more to the electronic side of music, she in fact does quite the opposite. Often waxing poetic with what has been described like the husky sweetness of Stevie Nicks. Beatty's work has been featured in museums, at festivals and conferences, and she's received accolades from the music tech and art industries. But what really clinched it for me was when I learned how she met and performed with Wynton Marsalis. I'll let her tell you that story. Very nice to meet you too. Thanks for joining our show. Oh no, it's a pleasure. Great. Well, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you um, to start was you seem to have a longing for album art, like it's a lost art that you're going to resurrect. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about that and then we'll get into raw space. Okay. Well, it kind of all begins um, with, you know, so I'm a great, I'm a real great lover of stories as albums um, and the tangibility of records and that ceremony of listening. Um, and th that sort of love really began from, you know, an early age when I started writing songs around, I think, age eight. Um, and at the same time, I discovered my parents' record collection. And I just thought these were the most magical things I'd ever seen. And, you know, I could open them up and read them like musical stories and look at the artwork and, um, you know, read the lyrics and all that rich content. And I, I feel like that artwork really provided a sort of backdrop for the music so that when you went to, you know, put the needle on, you had all this context, you had this amazing imaginary space. And there was, you know, also again, just that, that ceremony of listening um, to that experience. Um, so from a very early age, you know, I was imagining what my album was gonna sound like, but I was also imagining what it would, what it would look like and what it would feel like. Um, and those two components were really, um, you know, very much integrated into that sort of listening process for me. Um, so then, you know, fast forward many, many years and it, it was time for my first album to be released. And I saw the types of formats that were, you know, the new vinyl, the new tape, the new CD. Um, and none of them really had that tangible component. Um, and I... I guess, you know, I saw the, the fact that we could share music so much more easily and I saw all the benefits of the digitalization of music, but I also was kind of nostalgic for having that kind of slightly deeper experience with that artistic, you know, counterpart. Um, and I guess, yeah, from, from that point, I just thought about how I could recreate the vinyl, uh, you know, but for today's generation. Uh, that's great. Well, you know, it's also you, you're 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 part of a movement that where the artist is 
certainly a musical artist, musician in that artistry, but there's also other components to the art I'm seeing. And that's kind of been lost in this digital age. I mean, I, I remember, um, for instance, when the Beatles were coming out with Sgt. Pepper's, um, John Lennon, I don't know if you've ever seen, he drew out the sketch of what he wanted the cover to look like. And I think that that has kind of been sort of relegated over the last couple of decades to a marketing or an art department at a record label, when in fact, that whole package is really the ownership of the artist. Absolutely. It's, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think that the, you know, the vision with an album, the vision with a song, you know, it goes beyond simply the music and it extends into those other, um, you know, mediums. And that's the wonderful thing, you know, about, you know, that vinyl format is you, you know, you had so many components to it where, where you know, that allowed the artist to really tell a story. Um, and I, I, I agree, I think that has been lost. And I think, but I think it's a really key part of both the artist's expression, but also the audience's sort of experience of going on a journey. So, so you know, if I can think about it um, from a, a person who grew up with vinyl, uh, and eight-track tapes, <laughs> and, and cassettes, and um, then CDs, um, it, it's it's an interesting time where when there are those who believe that album, the album concept or album-oriented repertoire, AOR, uh, as sometimes called, um, is lost, you're actually part of a movement that's bringing it back. I'd like, yeah, I'd like to think so. Um, I, I actually believe very strongly that we need certain things and certain conditions for something to really imprint itself on us in a deep way. And I think that if you were to ask a lot of, you know, your friends and different people, you know, what are the key albums for them if they were taking those albums to a, you know, a desert island? It's, I think it's really interesting, or it would be really interesting to see how many of those sort of predate the digital era, because there was that experience of having this sort of something of a sacred space you know you bought the album you're super excited you're kind of devouring it you're learning all you can about it um you know you're you're stimulated in that sense um and then you know you you put it on and you kind of listen to it as a whole and um and it just i i really feel that that combination of sort of something of a ceremony having space around you at the time and also having this sort of tangible trigger, this aesthetic trigger, I think those are really key in, you know, the way we then listen to music and how that stays with us. So I kind of think it's not about being, you know, retrospective and saying, oh, well, we've got to go back to this time. It's about using the tools that we now have to bring to life some of the best of, of the old kind of again, so that you know people have another option from just you know listening on streaming sites or youtube in this kind of very fast food fashion sure. um, 
what do you what do you think about uh, kind of the the uh, another thing that's happening sort of concurrently, and that is high definition or high resolution audio? I yeah, I think high definition, high resolution audio is it you know it, it you can without a doubt you can tell the difference, and I'm yeah. I I have a very <laughs> like a very sort of anal ear when it comes to to audio um because you know i mix as well as sort of um co-produce i i also mix a lot of the the my work um mm -hmm. and i sometimes it is excruciating you know when you do hear things acutely but i kind of think in some ways that is where the compromise you know that's where the compromise has been made for people to be able to listen to music on the go i mm -hmm. mean you have you know, you do have differences between the streaming sites, obviously, and, and I and I can hear that. Sure. Um, but I kind of think that it's it's weird because audio is is really the most important for me. But I think when it's degrees of variation, it doesn't matter so much. When it's really stark, you know, when it, when it's sort of highly compressed MP3 or you know, su super lush sort of flat. And you really can hear that. Then I think um, you know I will always favour the latter. But but I guess what I've been focused on is just actually trying to look at the presentation of of an album, the presentation of music or of or of that format in a different way that at least gets people to really you know um, kind of really want to listen. Um, yeah. I think the audio fight is kind of maybe you know. Uh, the next fight potentially sure well we're going to get into raw space and 3d vinyl and your pop top theater and nfc in a second but before we go too far i wanted to ask you about your connection with my friend winton marsalis <laughs> yeah <laughs> winton um so well i'll start off by saying that he's absolutely wonderful um not just wonderful as a musician, but as a as a leader, as a um, as a sort of you know, he's almost like a poet. And I've I've sat in many lectures of, of his at the Juilliard, and he has this ability to really inspire and and instruct and lead, but in a fashion where I think you know no one would feel as if he was. It's the Lao Tzu quote, you know, he a good leader leads from behind. And I really, I really feel that about Winton. Um, I had, you know, our story is kind of funny because we were both playing at Ronnie Scott's one night. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say I didn't actually know, you know, who he was. Um, and somehow we found out that there was a mutual, you know, connection and um, in friends or family. And we went out, you know, and had lunch the next day. And I was still trying to figure out, you know, what instrument he played. While we <laughs> and, you know, sort of so, I was so embarrassed because I just didn't, ha I just had been so amiss at sort of doing my research. Because, um, you know, in the UK, he's not as, um, he hasn't got the godlike status that he has in, in the States. Sure. And um, so I was making sure I didn't ask any questions that that were too uh, <laughs> limited. And um, and anyway, we just, we really hit it off. And, you know, in terms of like 
a lot of the reasons that we make music, you know, so with Winton, a, a big part of, um, you know, a big part of his belief is that the why is the most important. And that was something that I always uh, felt myself, you know, the intention behind um, you as a musician, you know, what it, what it is you're trying to do and why, and that core energy that drives that. Um, and I remember this lovely thing that his father had said to him, you know, which is if you're making music to make money, don't, if you're making music to uplift people do. Um, mm -hmm. and that was something that, you know, really stuck with him and, and something I really believed. So we, we really hit it off. And then, um, then we actually played through uh, a lot of the songs that were on my first album, eight, um, together. And he was on piano and I was on guitar. Um, and it was fascinating actually, because, you know, there were one or two songs, which I think the, the producer had had issues with a certain chord, you know, that being too much of a, uh, you know, deviation from the norm and, Winton was there sort of writing out everything that I'd written and analyzing it and got to the end of this sort of 15 minute, um, you know, note taking session on one of the songs and then just said, oh, this is brilliant because, you know, and then, and then said a bunch of things I didn't really understand. Um, but in terms of just, you know, the, the balance of the discords and the, you know, the sort of internal harmonies and, and, um, and it was wonderful, actually, you know, to have him who is such a, you know, he's a real jazz purist. And oh, yeah. I, I don't make jazz, you know, I don't play jazz. Um, but for him to be so taken with the songs and, you know, he, he'd pay so much attention to the lyrics. He loved this line in one of my songs, which is, um, make it up, there's honey where the maggots lie. And mm -hmm. I, when he heard that, he said, you know, you have this sort of, Yates-like um, power of oppositions going on, which is just fascinating. So he was so complimentary. And I think at that early age, because that was my first album, he was something of, you know, he was such an encouragement and such a support and really gave me kind of belief in myself um, as a director of my own music. Yeah, he's, uh, he's also got a pretty good sense of humor. Oh yeah, he's no, he's very funny. Um, yeah, I remember one um, one day I was with his uh, role at Jazz at Lincoln Center. There's a, a sushi restaurant on the street level um, around uh, Columbus Circle, and I was having a, actually a pretty serious meeting. And while I was talking to the group, um, I sort of looked at everyone in the group that was facing me. All of a sudden, looked up, and I found myself in a headlock. And I had no idea who was choking me and putting their arm around me. And of course, I, as I gradually turn around and look up, it was Winton. Uh, and he's just a, a, he's a wonderful guy. In addition to a, a brilliant artist, he's, uh, as you just you know, pointed out, he's, he, he's, a, he's a fascinating man. He really is. There was a very, there was a very funny moment. I think it was a year or two ago when, um, you know, it was the, the NFL season and I'd gone over to his place to watch one of the games and we were sort of, we were talking about like Persian poetry and Hafiz on the one hand and then, 
you know, and then he was screaming at the television on the other. I just thought this juxtaposition is so, it's, you know, he's, um, he's sort of very down to earth, but then also very um, esoteric. Yeah, absolutely. So on the, on the while we're talking about great musicians, um, I noticed the, your, you perform solo, but you also have this pack that is some pretty, pretty good musicians on that roster, your band pack, um, including an artist that we're familiar with, uh, Nigel Kennedy, because I know he's done some jazz and klezmer and classical. Uh, tell me about your band and, and how that works and, and how you incorporated cello and violin into your repertoire. Well, I, you know, on the songwriting side, I feel that when you write a song, it it kind of comes with an inherent arrangement, um, which is almost like it's, you know, within it's within the song when you write it. So um, just to explain that, I think that, you know, a great song can obviously be played on a you know piano or a guitar on a single instrument and it should in theory still be you know as powerful um but i think that you know when i definitely when i write songs i hear the arrangements within them even when i'm playing them acoustically um and so you know when you mention you know strings and um and that kind of that side of it that was always something that i think very much you know complemented the you know, a lot of the songs that I was writing um, in terms of drama, in terms of, you know, uh, a build up or energy. Um, the core of my band has always been, um, you know, bass, mainly double bass, um, played by um, this wonderful musician called Yaron Stabby. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then drums and percussion played by um, Adam, Adam Hayes. Um, and, you know, myself on, on guitars or pianos or, you know, various other instruments. And that has really been the core, um, this trio. Um, but obviously then when we go into the studio, you know, you have uh, the ability to sort of build things up in greater detail. But I've always felt that, um, you know, I've always been fairly, I wouldn't say minimal, but I've always, it's always been a acoustic instrumentation you know, the idea is that if we record something in the studio, I'd want to be able to replicate it on stage. You know, if we were to have a show at, you know, the Royal Albert Hall and we had sort of, we could have all those wonderful musicians that have played on the record, I'd like to be able to replicate it instead of, you know, maybe using a lot of things as like synthesizers and things right. like that. So it has yeah. a very um, acoustic sounding feel. Um, in general, even, you know, when the songs are quite well built up and arranged, you know, with, you know, very ornate string parts and, and organs and, you know, sort of pianos and things like that. Um, so I don't know if that's answering your question. but Yeah, yeah. I, it, well, I, I really enjoyed the arrangements. And, and what I'm hearing is you've created those arrangements. And, you know, one of the things and because I'm a I'm a uh, such a fan of the Beatles I always kind of go back to that and say you know one of the things that made some of the great Beatles songs even greater 
were these string arrangements and George Martin's way of taking this raw song, adding certain cello, strings, harpsichord, whatever. And you have a bit of that, that actually, now I haven't seen you live, but it, it adds an element to the music uh, from, a, from a musical point of view, sort of like you're doing from the visual point of view, as I, I think, you, I've seen somewhere where you say you're, you see music differently. And I believe that that is another component that is going to be the sort of characteristic that launches new artists into uh, a place by reaching an audience that is really craving that. And when they finally hear it, it clicks. Yeah. No, and I think, you know, because the Beatles, um, it's that sort of style of Baroque pop, um, which actually I think we had one, you know, we at some point there was a comparison made. Um, and with definitely with the string parts, you know, so I write the string parts with um, my co-producer, Tom Lothman, and, you know, we really get into, we, I, we have a huge amount of fun with it because we've got no idea, you know, the day before um, the players are coming in, but then we sort of sit down and we think about it and we go through various, you know, cycles. But it's it's bizarre. I mean, it's not something that I think you can um, analyze too much. It's just when I, you know, really when I'm listening to the song and especially as you hear it build, you know, and you start to hear, okay, it's got the core ingredients there that it could work just as it is. But, you know, you suddenly have this big, you know, this build in this chorus and, you know, where are you getting that heightened drama um, and what is going to enhance that moment, you know, rather than, because obviously you could go in so many different ways and it's almost, it really does feel like that there is a, that there is a part there that you just have to, um, you know, uncover that's sort of going to have the right balance of momentum but also um sustain and it's i actually have it's one of the most fun parts of you know especially making raw space was just writing those string parts and and then hearing them come to life you know and then and hearing how it helps the architecture of the song in the way that you described um by just bringing this whole other sort of you know dimension to it well, and I've, I've noticed on, a, uh, on several of your songs, you actually do that in real time. So the song will start out very unplugged and layered over the next several minutes. You'll start to see this much bigger sound evolve, which is beautiful. There's a, there's a, a real interesting video, again, to bring up the Beatles. Uh, when George Harrison died, um, there was a tribute to George Harrison. And... Uh, Paul decided during one of the songs as a tribute, they were playing uh, mostly uh, George Harrison songs, um, that he would tell the story about how he and George would sit there and play ukuleles uh, to the song Something. And he starts out the song in, in a, almost a different uh, way that people are familiar with the final version that everyone knows. And he, he sings it and he plays the ukulele and you kind of get it. You get into the rhythm and then over time it layers into this huge orchestral uh, version of something. And it, it, it allows the listener to see, 
how these compositions evolve. And I think there's a component to that, especially with the tech side of what you do that makes interesting music for people who may not really understand it on a technical level, on a musician's level, but when they see it, it kind of a light bulb goes off. Well, and I think actually just as you were just, just as you were talking, I was thinking about it. And for me, it's also, you know, having something start very minimally um, and then you s slowly start building as the song develops and as it as the story um, kind of evolves. I think the story of the song is actually where you get all the instruction of you know, where you're introducing elements, where you're building, where you're stripping it back. And if you if you are true to that story, um, then it's actually really, you know, it's ki it kind of all makes sense. You're saying, well, you know, we begin with this solitary man on his own in this de dusky desert scene. And, you know, he's at the end of his, uh, he's sort of j just, totally forlorn and it's this guitar and vocal and nothing else and then you have this sense that maybe there's you know some hope and then the strings come in and they're growing and um you know I think I I so see the songs as stories that that informs so much of what I'm adding and when and um I think that actually makes it you know also a a, a more um not logical process but just one that is kind of you 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 question everything like what well, is this adding to the story and is this helping to tell that story um and if it isn't then you just lose it well you know I, it, it's it's interesting that you say that as a vocalist and as a guitar player and a piano player um but i think that what you just said applies to instrumental music as well i remember um, I'm one of the worst guitarists in the world, but I've been playing forever. And I was taking guitar lessons back in college from this really great local jazz guitarist who was a good academician as well. And we were talking about the th theory of guitar solos. And he said exactly that. He said, if you go back and you say, what are some of the greatest guitar solos? He would say, to me, the ones that I really enjoyed the most and resonated the most with me were the solos that told the story. It had a beginning, a body, and an end. And when you got done, you really felt like you got the whole meal. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Yeah. So well, let's flip the technology a little bit, because I, I know you're a techie and I want to talk about, I didn't understand 3D vinyl, but I was hoping you could explain it to me. Okay, well, so, so really what it was, and this was the my first album, Eight. Um, you know, I, I began with the question that I still have in my mind, which is how do we make a vinyl for today's generation? Um, so that, you know, for, for the first album was really as simple as, well, let's put the vinyl on an iPhone or an iPad you know, so that you have all the aesthetics, the lyrics and the liner notes. And, you know, it was, so it was contained within this app, which you opened up and there you had the equivalent of a sort of digital vinyl on your phone. Okay. Um, but then to take that 
one step further because you know I, this was also in the days when there weren't many apps around so that's why I think it was quite you know it was it was novel um but to really excite you know that sort of imagination um and to bring that album to life um what you did is you opened up this app you know and had this very actually uh, traditional experience with the record on your phone but then you would slot your phone into this little Japanese device and it turned it into a theater for the palm of your hand. So you were actually able to watch, you know, me <laughs> sort of performing to you um, in the palm of your hand. And it was kind of very, it was pretty magical. Yeah. Um, and it was pre-AR, pre-VR, you know, and it had this sort of 80s nostalgic feel of like the old viewfinders. Yeah, um, yeah. And people just, you know, they they loved it. And I think it was also, you know, something that very much makes sense now after I've talked more about, you know, talked about the music. People really love that mix of of old school, you know, more classic music with this sort of different, innovative, um, you know, experience rather than it being electronic music and, you know, uh, and, a, and a techie counterpart. Um, so that was, that was the beginning really of, of, you know, the journey that I've been on ever since. Um, and that was for the first album. Right. So that, so that's where I got lost because the 3d vinyl was actually for eight. That was a, a couple of years back. I, I actually downloaded your eight app, which I thought was great. In fact, if someone downloaded it now, uh, I think it's, is it, I think I downloaded BD eight. Is that what it, I think I, yeah, and, and it came right up on the Apple Store, um, but I didn't realize it was several years old because it looked pretty current, and then I tried to buy one of those Palm Top theaters, and I couldn't buy one. I tried to find one. <laughs> well, so I, so I, I tell you, um, Michael, this was, it was five years ago, probably even more. Um, which is why, you know, when I said it was very, um, it was very new in both the territory of apps and also that, you know, there was nothing in the AR or VR or any of this, you know, anything like that existed. Um, so the Palm Top Theatres, um, while the album, you know, was out and it was, there was, you know, a, a good amount of excitement around it, the Palm Top Theatres was sort of, selling like hotcakes i mean i think yeah. they they're only 15 bucks or 10 10 bucks yeah yeah i saw i saw that i saw the availability of them i saw that yeah. there were some site site actually sites from china where i could actually uh they had it but i it was in chinese so i couldn't figure out how to buy it um okay. <laughs> but, but I, i'm gonna get one of those because i want to see how it works because it looked even without the uh the device uh, it looked pretty cool. In fact, it reminded me of, you know, the, uh, I'm a science guy, so the primitive holograms called the Pepper's Ghost. Yes, well, that's what it is. That's yeah. exactly, that's what the Palm Top Theater is, um, you know, using to create that feeling of, of having this performance in the palm of your hand. It's the Pepper's Ghost mechanism. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so... Funny that you're doing raw space. I'm going to tell you a story and then tell me how you're living my dream. 
um, back in the early 90s, um, I actually started a record label. And it was at the company, it's no longer around because it was acquired by Universal, Polygram Records. And um, we had a little boutique label uh, in the Verve group, which was the jazz label where Diana Krall and Herbie Hancock and some other pretty big jazz artists are. And the original name of the, of the uh, label was Indigo Music, but Polygram had some issues legally with Sony because of the Indigo Girls. And we wound up calling the label IE Music, and it stood for Interactive Entertainment Music. And the premise of the label was we were going to sign really great artists, but the whole idea was to do more than audio. We saw that MTV as a pure music video channel probably wasn't going to last forever as pure music video and that the quote unquote interactive component of an album is probably the future of music. So we did this as a joint venture with Polygram. We launched the label. You know, Lee Rittenauer, guitarist, was my partner. Um, we signed artists from world music artists to Al Jarreau. And Polygram came back to us and said, no interactive component to any of your releases because we're not going to allow you as a little boutique label in the Verve group to have interactive albums and the rest of the company is just going to have audio only. So we literally dropped the whole IE initiative, even though we kept the name for the label. And now you're doing it because it seems like you are making the interactive album, the audio, the visual, the text for enjoyment including audio, but beyond audio. And I see you're doing that in raw space. Can you tell us about raw space? Absolutely. Well, first, I, I feel <laughs> feel like I'd be really pissed off because that was a brilliant idea. And um, that so should have happened. You know, I think it's, it's sort of some, so often, you know, unfortunately, I think labels come to things a little too late. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> well, you're able to you're able to do it because you are the CEO of your label. You are the marketing director. You are the creative director, and you're the artist. That is that is correct. Um, yeah, I I had this funny experience, which was really, you know, along with Winton being such a fantastic support. Um, I've been very lucky with you know some really brilliant people, kind of getting on side and um I remember being in LA one of my first trips to LA and I was with the former manager of um the Pixies and the Pumpkins and Nirvana and this total force of nature um who I think was the youngest exec at Atlantic and you know various other achievements and um and I was telling her about I think it was Montague Square at the time you know the jacket and the deck of cards and and um, and she said, she, I, ca I can't even imitate her voice, but it's like proper, proper old school New York. But she was like, Beatty, um, you know, you've got to be the CEO of your business and I'm on your board. And <laughs> and I just thought, like, you know, it was kind of such a nice way of putting it. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so with, you know, with raw space, um, I guess where I, you know, where I was five years ago with eight and thinking, okay, how do you just take a vinyl and put it on 
the thing that everyone's using right now, which is their phones and their iPads. Um, that was a very simple, uh, kind of a simple concept. And, you know, that was also at the time when digital downloads were the main medium, you know, that people were, were buying and, and how they were listening. Um, now we're, we're streaming, you know, streaming is the new, that's the new sort of um, format. So about eight months ago, I was really thinking, you know, okay, streaming is so taking over and it's so prevalent. And what is the streaming experience offering at the moment? And what could the streaming experience offer, you know, on, on this flip side? Um, I, at the time I was thinking about it as this anti-stream, I realized that sounds quite negative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, it was more the antithesis of the streaming experience. Um, the I, you could have called it the downstream. The downstream. I like that. <laughs> well, I actually call it the deep stream. You know, okay, it's that deep. I like that better. Um, deeper streaming experience. Um, so I was kind of thinking about this, you know, had this idea in the back of my mind. And then I was on site at Bell Labs for this collaboration we were doing around you know me sh sort of showcasing some something that they developed as the first artist to do so and um and one of the engineers said look would you like to come and you know see the the anechoic chamber this is the original anechoic chamber which means anti-echo chamber um and you know i thought yeah absolutely so we went up and I had my guitar and the end, the guy said, look, you probably won't be able to stay in here longer than 10 minutes because it's very disorientating and, and people, you know, feel sick and or a variety of, of different things. And I went in there and found it to be one of my favorite places in the world. You know, I just, my whole body just kind of relaxed and I felt so comfortable and it's I mean it's really interesting because obviously now there are a lot of these chambers which have actually been built um you know after this one so this was the blueprint for all the anti-echo chambers in the world and it was the quietest room in the world for many years um it's the room where multiple um sound discoveries have been made and breakthroughs and you know, figuring out about, um, you know, psychoacoustics and rogue frequencies. And so it's absolutely fascinating in terms of our understanding of sound. Um, yeah. And I, but, but in terms of that feeling of being in this room, that's actually very large. It's much larger than any other chamber that I know of. It's 15, you know, meters by 15 meters. And you're standing on this wire suspended floor so that you have this depth, this kind of um, basement almost below you, um, so that your ear is in the center of the room. And there is, you know, there is no reverb, there is no echo, there is nothing, um, I, you know, it's 99.99995% sound absorbent. And I started playing music in there and you know, came out of the room, I thought it was five or 10 minutes later, and it was actually two hours. Um, I'd been in there for two hours, hadn't even realized it. And it was so 
uh, it was such a profound experience. It was, I felt so comfortable there. I loved the sound of music in there. Um, it just resonated with me, this room and that experience. And I started thinking about how it could be involved in this, this anti-stream idea. Um, and suddenly, you know, that connection of, oh, this is the anti-echo chamber. Isn't this the perfect place <laughs> to launch this anti-stream from? Mm -hmm. You know, that, then that connection was made. Um, and then, yeah, I just started really developing this idea of, you know, having this record player in the center of, of the chamber um, and having it play the album, you know, on vinyl on repeat uh, from, you know, within this unique sort of sonic um, room. Um, and, you know, this idea that people could log in, they'd log into the chamber, they'd look around in, you know, 360 via these Ozo cameras, um, and they'd be able to be in that room in this amazing sort of space that for me, you know, just going back to that whole idea of, you know, we need a, a ceremony around music. This mm -hmm. room naturally instills this feeling of ceremony. You know, you feel you're in a sacred space. It completely silences the noise, you know, around. Um, and so I love the idea of people hearing the album in this kind of ceremonial room um, where that where no noise could infiltrate and they would be able to look around and explore that space and wherever they logged in because the album would be playing continuously you know they couldn't shuffle they couldn't rewind they couldn't pause just where where they entered that's what they would hear um, and so that was kind of the beginning of the idea. And then I started thinking, well, how do you bring into that experience all that rich content that's being left out of, say, the streaming one, but that we had when we, we had those vinyls, you know, with the cover and with the artwork and with the lyrics and the liner notes? How do you bring all that rich vinyl content into this raw space experience? Um, and so then it was this idea of actually having the the artwork flying off the vinyl and surrounding the listener and transporting them into the visual landscape of each song you know so for track two the man who they would be in this dusky desert you know this surreal sort of salvador dali desert that just seemed to go on forever and the walls of the chamber would have collapsed um you know, and they'd be watching this yakometi character sort of hanging himself and they you know the crows would surround them and envelop them so it was almost like just bringing to life those stories of the songs in this visual way um and that was done by working with this amazing interactive design team called design io um mm. who really specialize you know in this area um so you know that was all augmented reality so this what the the wonderful juxtaposition was that people were you know logging into this room in real time into this chamber with this tangible record player just playing you know if you'd gone in there in that moment that's what you'd hear but then we had this augmented reality overlay that meant that as the record was spinning the the artwork was you know 
kind of coming to life. And with every spin of the album, the artwork would evolve because parts of it were hard-coded like that desert plain, but then mm -hmm. parts were generative. So for, for that scene where you're in the desert, for that song, you know, at the, at the climax, I could be swept up in a sandstorm or you could be swept up in a sort of flurry of crows. It would depend on, you know, that particular spin, you know, that those generative elements. And so it felt like as a listener, um, you were inside your favorite album, you know, and, and that album was dynamic. It was it was sort of changing. It had moments of flux. And for me, that was just so exciting because it just represented, you know, this way of bringing back, you know, the, that, that vinyl experience and having all that artwork in the back of your mind before you listen to the music and having that ceremonial feeling. Um, but it did it in this, you know, in this kind of different way that was actually immersive, you know, very much immersive. Fascinating, fascinating. The, uh, I think you're onto something. Um, let me uh, switch gears a little bit, because you actually, you know, in addition to taking my idea for a record label and doing it on your own and embarrassing me, um, you also have an interest in using music as a way to help people with dementia. Tell me about that, because I, I actually, um, I'm very interested in dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. And I also have my own theory. So I'd love to hear what you're doing and then we can talk about it. Well, um, what's the quote from Monty Python? Now for something completely different. Um, <laughs> so. Yes, we, we went from raw space to dementia in a matter of seconds. It's amazing. The, the interesting thing, because, you know, it's a project I began um, several years ago. Um, and which I really focused on for a, a year or almost two in between albums. Um, and it's funny because we, I'd go and speak at these, you know, various events and, you know, perform and speak, which is kind of unusual maybe for an artist. But I'd, I'd want to be talking about my musical innovations, you know, the raw, raw space or the jacket or whatever. But I always wanted to also share the dementia story. And initially it seemed random. You know, I thought, well, how are they, I'm talking about, you know, all this kind of far out stuff in terms of formats and then I'm performing and then I'm talking about dementia and you, you wonder if that's just too much. But actually it's, I don't think it is because I've realized that, um, you know, when I talk about ceremony around music, for just, you know, us in general, for people in general. Um, and I think of that as being so key to that experience and to that deeper stream. Um, what I witnessed when I began this music and dementia um, research program, which actually then, you know, Stanford got in touch about and, and asked if they could develop uh, or extend the research because they thought it was so good. Um, I, you know, I saw, I saw so many moments where people were responding in completely magical ways to these songs, which actually they'd never heard. So our study was at, was looking at music outside of memory, um, as opposed to you know familiar songs that trigger 
um, you know, memory and then bring people back. Um, so that's why that this study was new. And what was so interesting is that when you had multiple um, sources of stimulation, you know, if there was a lot going on, uh, which the carers thought would be good, because, you know, if you've got a television and, and, you know, music or someone giving a talk, and you've got, you know, kind of a variety of activities, the idea is that something will penetrate. Um, actually, it's the opposite. It was when we had nothing going on except for, you know, the live performance or someone sitting there with with headphones listening to a song. When you had that singular deep experience, that's when those breakthrough moments would occur with people, you know, coming back, you know, into the room in just the most amazing ways. You know, one guy who hadn't uh, really got out of bed for for ages and was virtually sort of catatonic and whose family had stopped visiting, um, you know, the carers were just hoping for a smile. You know, if, if they got a smile, that would be amazing. And he ended up getting up and, and dancing um, to one of the songs. And so there were these inexplicable, um, you know, transformations, but they would occur when there was there was a very um, ceremonial uh, focus. And that has been one of my you know, biggest learnings is that actually this isn't something, this is something that applies to all of us. You know, that sure. we're now in this point where there's so much information, so much stimuli, and you know, it's so easy to go on autopilot um, and also you know, feel as if our phone is sort of the portal to all connection and that we can microtask and how, you know, how productive that feels. But I, I really think it's about carving out time um, to have, you know, these, these, you know, much deeper and richer experiences, which are actually core to our humanity. Um, so with, yeah, with the Dementia Project, it was a study that I began in the UK and it ran for several months um, and, you know, with with really amazing results. Um, again, just looking at, at music outside of memory, which was something that Oliver Sacks, this wonderful neurologist, had, um, you know, he'd he'd sort of I mean, he is so, um, you know, he's done so much in this area. I think that he's one of, he's definitely one of my heroes. Um, he documented so many case studies for using music for Parkinson's and autism and um, you know, schizophrenia and all these various conditions. And he just proved the validity of music as, as medicine by having that combination of, you know, hard science, but also, you know, a, a great heart and, you know, being a real humanitarian. So um, he ends his book. Um, you know, just on the subject of dementia, he ends the book saying, you know, I have looked at, you know, obviously looked at familiar music being a trigger, but um, really, you know, music should not have to be familiar to exert its emotional pull. Um, and so that's what I would wanted to go on and sort of, you know, look at um, myself if, if, you know, that idea of his, which he obviously had great reason to believe was true if I could just add some 
add some weight to that. Um, well, well, that's that's a uh, it's interesting. I, I have my own take on that, and and that it is certainly uh, you know you you have uh, contributed a, an important step to what a lot of people are looking at as far as what music does to the brain. And the the one thing that I've sort of read about and thought about for years is that there's this sort of concept that dopamine release takes place. It's it's too generally thought of as when you're experiencing pleasure, your pleasure center, It's it, it involves dopamine. But I think more recent thinking is, is that dopamine was an evolutionary way for the brain to recognize something that was new. So, you know, one of the reasons why I think, you know, my first love musically is pop, but where I've gravitated to most of my life is jazz. And I think the reason is, is with jazz, as opposed to most pop music, where you can kind of expect the expected, um, and especially songs that become popular. And as you said, you hear them over and over again. With jazz, you can hear the same song, but if improvisation is taking place, then it's always new. And you may be stimulating dopamine every time you hear a new version of that song. So it, it's a fascinating subject. And I and the reason I brought it up is because I know you've worked in it, which I think is, is very interesting. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done. In fact, the brain is something that I, I believe over the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to know so much more about it that we will realize we didn't know much at all back in the 90s and turn of the century. But you did say you did say something that that I wanted to did not want to forget. And that is, I'd like to hear about your musical jacket. Okay. <laughs> um, just just closing off on on, you know, what you said, I, I think that in the same way that we know, you know, not a lot about the brain um, compared to what we could know. I think we we know very little about music <laughs> mm-hmm. and and its effects. Um, and there's a whole well of, you know, of learning there. But I also think that's part of the magic of music is is that mysterious, you know, is that you're entering into this um, this sort of unknown area that can just trigger and you know move and uplift and um and it's not always logical um and it's not always predictable um but i think that you know just on that subject of music and dementia um when people you know because i remember i gave a, a talk at the american alzheimer's association on on this project and I at that point thought that you know using familiar music and you know playlists that had been curated for those individuals' tastes. I thought that was a really given. You know that was a, a very sort of well-known thing. Um, so obviously I was um, I was saying something a bit more radical. But even after this presentation, I had so many carers, so many professionals coming up and saying, "Oh, we didn't even know that." you know, using familiar music could help, um, which I found kind, you know, kind of amazing thinking, you know, we should be so much further ahead than we are right now. Um, 
And so it's not actually about, you know, familiar music over new music or vice versa. It's just thinking about, you know, really empowering people to be able to realize that if they're going into a care home, they can use music, you know, whether they preload an, uh, an iPod or they bring in an instrument or that music is, you know, something that we have at our fingertips. We don't have to wait for care homes to change, you know, or for <laughs> pharmaceutical companies to change, which will right. never happen. Um, it's something that we, you know, as family members, as friends can use and access. And when people ask, you know, well, what is it about, you know, what is a song doing? Why is suddenly that song providing a, a transformation? You know, I think that I th the way I, the analogy I have is if you're in, if you're in a car and you're in a foul mood, you know, and it's terrible traffic and you're so pissed off and you have this red mist and you can't see anything. Um, and then a song or a piece of music comes on and it doesn't matter if you've heard it before. It doesn't matter if it's connecting you with a previous experience. If you hear this, you know, music and it moves you, you know, and it just immediately connects with you. And, you know, suddenly you're in this altered state and you're feeling great. <laughs> and it's right. taken you to a whole other place. Um, why wouldn't that occur, you know, with people living with dementia or Alzheimer's? Why wouldn't that same uh, process occur? And so I think that, um, you know, in that particular area, it's just about finding other ways in. And, and music is one of the best ways I can think of. Well, yeah, you know, the what I found interesting, uh, I've been reading a lot about this, and, you know, thousands of years ago, and they archaeologists have dug up flutes from thousands and thousands of years ago that obviously prehistoric man, you know, I, I, I mean hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, was playing. They were playing flutes. So what came to mind was you know, these flute-playing Neanderthal men who would use it as somewhat of an aphrodisiac to attract a certain kind of women who was interested in that flute playing because obviously they weren't listening to other forms of music that then perpetuated a species that was interested in music. <laughs> and if you think about it, this goes back for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And I think there is something about music that does something to people in the brain that someday we'll figure out. Yes. And, and if we don't, it, you know, if we don't, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, this has been, <laughs> this has been um, very interesting. Um, you know, it's, I, I love what you're doing. You're certainly a pioneer of a bunch of new ways to make and listen to music. Your storytelling is 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 something that I believe is uh, a missing ingredient in a lot of music today. The technologies that you're using from raw space to 3D vinyl to uh, NFC chips and things like that are, uh, are to be commended. And uh, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Michael. It's been so wonderful. Um, and, you know, I, I think that ultimately, you know, all of the all of the work I'm sort of interested in, um, it just 
you know, it, it's really because I'm such a passionate music lover. And I think that, you know, when you see what music can do in that healing space, it kind of reminds you that as an artist, it's your responsibility to make music, you know, as great as you can. Um, with this idea of it, you know, being um, as timeless as possible, you know, and, and not necessarily making music just for just to suit the day um, in any way. Um, and so, yeah, I I just think that, uh, you know, anything that makes people see music differently or value music more, that's what I'm going to be championing, really. Well, that's great. Well, before I let you go, first of all, that was great. We're going to go offline now, but the um, that was really very interesting. I'm sure we should stay in touch because there are a lot of things that uh, that I've been working on that are very similar. And for, for the last 20, 30 years, um, that because of my crazy life in, in various different businesses, including, I don't know if, if you know, I'm still a, still a practicing physician. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, that's where I got into kind of molecular imaging in the brain and things like that, which I wanted to keep out of this interview. But um, it's all real fascinating. I'm also a techie. I'm also a musician. I also, you know, obviously being in this, in the media business, in the music business, I have, I know so many musicians with so many ideas and so much talent. You know, how do we harness that and, and present things to fans that are really and truly craving for this? Absolutely. So if you could, uh, for the intro to the podcast, if you yes. can say, you know, easy, this is Beatty Wolf and you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. Cool. <laughs> Whenever you're ready. Hi, this is Beatty Wolf and you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. Boy, that's perfect on one take. Um, this is great. So I, I, I'm glad I, I, I sent you an email last night. I got yours back. Let's definitely stay in touch. There, are, you know, there are things that you're doing that I, I just absolutely love. Uh, I didn't want to come across as a groupie on the phone, but, but I just think, you know, there's, you're onto something here, and I think that it, I wish more people thought like you, kind of that 360 degree approach. Totally. Um, I use. It's funny. I, I, I often say the 360 degree approach. And then people get confused because obviously there's the 360 degree label, you know, sort of getting a part of everything that you do. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's a three, 360 degree label scam. Yeah, but I, I use that so often as, as a way of saying, you know, you've got to be a 360 degree artist. And, and we've had many of them. It's not like, you know, I mean, even... Um, you know, I always use the example of William Blake, who was like sure, a perfect sure. anagraver and, you know, and, and then even like David Bowie and like there are multiple people that have done, um, that have really extended their vision beyond music and really created these sort of amazing worlds for people. But I just don't think it's being encouraged, you know, by um, a lot of the old industry <laughs> folks and, and yeah. it's, and I think that we, we really need it. You know, it's a re really important. Um, so I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I was an exec at Warner. I was an exec at Polygram and Universal. And I actually left that world because I really I had a hard time dealing with the ineptitude. 
I had a hard time dealing with the with the greed. I had a hard time dealing with, you know, I, I'll tell you, I'll leave you with one funny story. The um, back in the early 90s, um, we had this I, I mentioned it briefly uh, in the podcast. We were looking at doing this label, Indigo Music, and it stood for Interactive Digital Go Music. Uh, it was an acronym for that. And, um, you know, I, I essentially got my friend who invented the Palm Pilot, which is when I when I saw your Palm Top Theater, I was like, Palm, I love Palm. I, I didn't realize it wasn't that Palm. But um, so Jeff Hawkins, who invented the Palm Pilot, uh, he had a, a phone at the time that uh, was kind of a PDA phone, almost like a very, very primitive iPhone, way before Apple launched the iPhone. And I, I, I called Jeff and I said, Jeff, why don't you put music modules in your phone so people can listen to music from their phones? And of course, you know, again, this was all pre-Apple music. And, and, and I said, um, he goes, well, how would that work? And I explained it to him and he said, that's brilliant. Let's do it. So we started working on this Indigo music project and, you know, we didn't know what it was. We kind of described it as a, a Walkman phone. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. We were, we were, I was younger, and, and no one really had defined the technology. And so I said, you know, but we need, we need better listening devices. People aren't going to want to listen to it through their crappy little speaker on their phone. So fortunately, I had another friend who owned a headphone company called Koss, K-O-S-S. And... Um, Michael and John Koss, uh, I've known them for years, and I reached out to them and I said, look, I'm working with Jeff Hawkins. We're thinking about doing this project called Indigo Music, and people can have Walkman phones, and we need headphones. And they go, well, which ones do you want? I said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want the headphones that you guys make. I need little portable ones, kind of like the old mono earphones that people used to put in the transistor radios, but I want two of them because it's stereo. Now... We didn't know what earbuds were, but Koss went to work on making these little earphones. And, and you know, what happened was is in the midst of all of this, and then Polygram decided they didn't want to do interactive music. Um, we basically kind of dropped the whole thing at about the time Apple was launching their iPod, which wasn't even, which wasn't even a phone yet. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, I've always, you know, I think about these things and then I forget about them. Michael, um, I mean, that's just, wow. That's <laughs> such a story. It's, it's, it's crazy. I actually, um, I'm finally writing my book, which is going to include a whole bunch of these crazy things that have happened to me over my life. But, you know, every once in a while I meet someone like you and I, I say, you know, this is, this is very interesting. This is a, this is on the cutting edge of something that I think is going to break. You know, the you, you play guitar, so you know, um, you've heard of PRS guitars? Yeah. So Paul Reed Smith is a friend of mine, and he is the founder of PRS. And he is now working on the brain. His big thing now is brain research. Jeff Hawkins, who I mentioned to you, who was the founder of the Palm Pilot, his big work right now, after he made a couple hundred million dollars, I think he's a billionaire now, but um, he's working on brain research. So it's kind of interesting how all these things are coming together and teaching us about ourselves. Absolutely. 
So with that, let's stay in touch. Uh, look forward to talking again. And I'll get Jeffrey, who is our engineer, who will make this happen. And we'll probably post it in the next week or so. Amazing. And and just from my side, was the, you know, the, the audio quality was okay for you? The audio was perfect. It actually always, your audio will sound better than my audio. You will come across crystal clear like we're next to each other. Okay, perfect. As Skype, by the way, just FYI, Skype works great for these types of things when you turn the video off, which yeah. I, I, I imagine you did because the audio was good. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I think I've got your email. Um, if not, then let me get it from LinkedIn because I know we're connected on LinkedIn. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a real easy email address. First initial, last name, M-F-A-G-I-E-N at jazzis.com. Okay, wonderful. Um, so M, uh, yeah, got, got you. And then uh, you've got the, have you got the album? The I, I have listened to all your music. In fact, okay. I, I, I stayed up last night to make sure that I listened to everything. By the way, I, I, I one of the songs really, really just resonated with me. And I'm trying, I'm really bad at song titles. Let me see if I can find it. I just loved it. It was just, uh, where is this? Is it from the new record? Um, you know, I, I was lit because I listened to the new record last. Okay. Um, I, I wanted it, the one, there was one track from eight that, um, uh, never, ever. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, that kind of reminded me of, by the way, if you haven't caught that George Harrison tribute with yeah. McCartney up there with the ukulele and then it literally will bring you to tears. Okay. It is it is so beautiful because it is not in the tempo of something. He's doing this folky ukulele thing solo, and then all of a yeah. sudden the whole orchestra comes in, and you, you literally you your your hair is raised on your in your body. You just can't believe it. Okay, so then one one song for you. Um, what should okay. I listen to? Give me something to listen to today. Yeah, yeah. If you don't know it, it is um, it's David Bowie and Tina Turner oh, singing, yeah. singing tonight. Do you know Do you know this track? Yes, yes, yes. That so that that's one of my Desert Island discs. That song um, just uh, and especially when I watch them perform it, and I'm thinking she is having the worst time of her life. Like during that performance yeah. and there's just so much love and oh man i, I burst into tears <laughs> oh it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's powerful you know that when david died you know he was working on a on a record with a lot of my friends they were jazz artists um uh, on the last black star album and um i wrote a piece i was so moved because because he was such such a powerful figure that it really, again, kind of like we're talking about, it reminded me of my own life and my own morbidity and mortality and things like that. Because so you just can't believe that someone like that is gone. Yeah. Um, I was going to also tell you one other thing. Oh, what are, oh by the way, you're, you live where in England? So I, well, I live in London. Um, okay. I'm currently in San Francisco. Um, and then I go to L.A., you know, so I'm in San Francisco for a week, then I'm in LA for two, th two weeks. Um, 
I'm kind of, I'm half British, half American. I'm definitely using my American passport a lot, like a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks to Trump. The, uh... I, I know, but you know, the UK is not looking too peachy either. Yeah, I know, it's a crazy time. Uh, a friend of mine who you may know uh, is also much into the visual. He's a jazz singer, piano player, lives outside of London. Um, Jamie Cullum. Oh yeah, for sure. Jamie's wonderful. Um, and his wife, uh, Sophie Dahl. Uh, I don't know if you know her. She is the granddaughter of Raoul Dahl. Yeah, of course. And uh, she, she did some acting and some modeling for a while. Um, she's also very much into the visual arts. So where you have it in one body, the two of them together between the music and the visual graphics, multimedia, they kind of do it together. So I, I immediately thought of you when I when I was introduced uh, of uh, of uh, uh, Jamie when I was introduced to you. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. He's got a radio show too, which you you may want to hook up with. It's on the BBC. Which is it? Is it BBC Two? BBC Two. Yeah, I thought. So. Yeah, um, I've actually I haven't listened to it, but I've heard it's great. He's great. He's a He's a great guy. I mean, uh, my wife is, we're, we're all friends, the four of us, and our kids are about the same age. I'm 60 years old with a five and an eight-year-old. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, my wife's 35, so, you know, it's it's one of these things where she wants to have another one, and I said, you may have to have a third child with your second husband. I don't know if I <laughs> could do this anymore. <laughs> have, you got, have you got a boy and a girl? I have two girls, but in my first marriage, I have a boy and two girls. So I have four girls and one boy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I think four kids you're probably quite happy with. <laughs> I, you know, it's my greatest accomplishment. That's, that's lovely. Yeah. Well, let's, let's definitely stay in touch. It was, it was I'm, wonderful to meet you. It was so nice to meet you and it was such a pleasure. It was just such a fun chat and, um, Hence why I'm I still I'm still chatting with you. So, no, so. It's, you know I, I do this because I love doing it, and and I don't know if you saw from our podcast. I mean, we interview. We're very selective. I mean, it could be Bill Clinton one day. It could be Neil Sean from Journey. It could be uh, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, or it could be Joshua Cooper Ramo for his new book, The Seventh Sense. Which, by the way, because you're a techie, you must read this book. Okay. The Seventh Sense by John. In fact, go to my LinkedIn and go to the Seventh Sense uh, thing that I wrote. It gives yeah. you a, a synopsis of the book. and You're going to want to go out and get it. OK, I'll, I will do that. All right, Petey. It was just wonderful. Thanks again. Michael, thank you so much. You bet. We'll be in touch. We'll be in touch. OK. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.